I love you all the way to the moon and back. Maybe some of you know where that quote is from. It's from a children's book called Guess How Much I Love You. I'd never heard of the book before somebody got it for Johanna and I, for Irene. Um, and I found out after reading it and then kind of realizing what had been happening around me in my life up to this point, that it's a very popular book. Suddenly all those uh, little like wood signs and decorations for your house and like antique sort of shops that say, I love you to the moon and back, like all suddenly made sense to me. This book is beloved by a lot of families because they read it to their kids. And it makes sense. A story that is read over and over and over again becomes kind of the part of your fabric as a person. And so when you grow out of that stage where you hear that story again and again into your adulthood, you may not read the story anymore, but there's usually that moment when the story comes back. It comes back because maybe you have kids and you want to read that story to them. Or maybe grandpa or grandma or one of your parents has an old story that they always tell and you love to hear it whether you're 2 or 42. As a child, it makes sense. So much of your life is new and unpredictable. The idea of having at least one aspect of your life that's predictable is well, very comforting. To know that you can sit down with mom or dad and read that story and know how it's going to end, it's, it's wonderful. It even leads kids to say things like, read it again when you just finished it. But the same is true for us as Christians. While it's not a colorful book in a cardboard paged um, bind, the old stories of who we are as Christians, they bring us a certain sense of comfort. They remind us of good old times when maybe we were in Sunday school, maybe reading the Bible for the first time, hearing the old stories from our parents as we grew up. But the beauty of God's scriptures is it's not just a bunch of old stories. It's not here just to entertain or to help you fall asleep at night. It's here to tell you profound truths. And so the old stories that we are going to read in this series are hopefully going to do that for you. Open up to you the profound nature of these Sunday school stories. That's why we're doing this series, Tell It Again, so you can understand those stories you know in a whole new way. So I want to do three things with this series. First of all, I want to actually read the texts again. As you notice, we read three chapters of the Old Testament today. That's abnormal for us here at Cross of Life, but I, I want to make sure that we get our noses back into the way God wrote these stories down for us. Because it's really easy as Christians to say, you know, I know that story, I've heard it before, I remember it, but to not actually go back and read it. And there are elements of the way the story is put together that will draw your attention to certain aspects of the story that maybe you didn't focus on before. Second, I want you to see how valuable the Old Testament is. Again, as Christians in the 21st century, it can be easy to avoid reading from the Old Testament because while it's very culturally contextual, it's translated from Hebrew, which is hard to get into good, readable English. It also has a lot of laws and repetition and things that just kind of scare 21st century English speakers away. We'd much rather read from the Gospels or from Paul's letters or Luke's account of the church in the New Testament than go back to the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is chock full of great content for our 21st century Christian life. So I hope to show you that. And third... 
I want you to see Jesus. You know, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees when he was on earth, and he said this really interesting quote. It's recorded for us in John 5. He says, You, Pharisees, study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You understand what he's saying? You religious people who read the scripture every day, you think that knowing the scripture saves you. You think that knowing the stories saves you. You think that learning principles for how to live your life from those scriptures saves you. It doesn't. It's not enough to know the stories. It's not enough to know the plot line. It's not enough to know the characters. You have to know Jesus. And so if you read these stories and you don't see Jesus, you're missing the point. While these stories certainly did absolutely happen, they are real history that lead up to the coming of Jesus on earth, God has woven together a beautiful tapestry of history and literature to point us constantly forward to the Jesus who comes to, uh, to die for our sins. Every story in the scripture should turn your mind to Jesus. And so I hope we can do that in this series. The story that we're going to start with is the story of Noah's Ark, which we already read. Uh, but before we get into the actual text of the story and pull out some principles to teach you those three things, we have to answer some intellectual questions. Because the truth is, the majority of people living in this country do not think this story actually happened. They would say it's mythological, maybe it's a story to teach a principle or a moral, but it's not real history. They'll say things like, you expect me to believe that there was a worldwide flood, like that it covered every continent and every mountain on that continent. And you're expecting me to believe that the boat that saved those people from that huge flood was built by a guy and his three sons who had no engineering background with wood. And you expect that boat to survive, apparently, the worst storm ever. And you're expecting me to believe that in that boat was every species of land-dwelling animal on the face of the earth. Don't you know we have, like, millions of species? And you're expecting me to believe that the whole reason this happened was so that God could kill a whole bunch of innocent people? That's your God of love? Really? Well, I want to do two things for you. First of all, I want to give you a couple answers to those questions. And then secondly, I want to show you why my answers will never convince you. See, first of all, there are answers to those questions. How did Noah build that ark? Well, more than likely, as a wealthy man as he was, he probably had people who already worked for him in his house. And as a man of means, he probably could have hired more people. So it wasn't just him and his three sons working on this boat. It was probably tens, maybe even hundreds of people who were working on this boat. And as far as it being wood and being able to survive such a terrible storm as the flood, we have evidence of other boats, similar in size, built of wood that lasted even decades, like the Wyoming, for example, which lasted 13 years on the oceans. This ark only needed to last one voyage. It did not need to be seaworthy after that. Any damage it took, it did not need to have repaired. And how did he get all those animals on there? Well, first of all, the question is wrong. The Bible never says that 
Noah got all the species of animals into the boat. It says he got all the kinds of animals into the boat, which means he didn't need a pair of wolves and a pair of coyotes and a pair of poodles and a pair of wiener dogs. He just needed one set of dogs. You could probably put this into the category of the genus of animals, of which there are about, give or take, 8,000 land-dwelling mammals and birds, excuse me. And if you take the average size of all those animals and multiply it out to that 8,000, 16,000, because he had two of every kind, the ark is actually generous in space for those animals. It's probably three to four times larger than it needed to be. And as far as the worldwide flood goes, we have fossil records that show that there seemed to be some major cataclysmic flood that happened about the same time in different parts of the world. We also have a fossil record that attests to the fact that there were a whole lot of animals that all seemed to die at the exact same time. And as far as God killing all those innocent people, you probably need to reevaluate your definition of innocent. See, human beings had broken the world. God had made a perfect world and people had sinned. In fact, God said their wickedness and their violence had come up against him. He had every right to end all of their lives, including Noah and his families. And even though the Bible says that Noah was righteous and blameless in his generation, that is simply an attestation to his faith, not to his behavior. Remember, the first thing that Noah does after he gets off the ark is sacrifice to God. And the second thing he does once he gets off the ark is get blackout drunk. He's not exactly a good man. God has the right to take anyone's life at any time. In fact, the very fact that you're still breathing today and not dead yesterday says something about God's grace, doesn't it? It says something about what God is planning to do with you, bringing you to this place to hear his word again. All of these things have intellectual answers, and in fact, if you really are interested, you want to dig into more of the scientific answers, the biblical archaeology that goes into this topic, you can actually go to a website that's really helpful. Answers in Genesis is a ministry based in um, Cincinnati, Ohio, that does a lot of work in biblical archaeology, and you could actually go to this website and find all of their uh, answers to the intellectual questions about Noah's Ark. But I'll let you know something. Nothing that you can read on that website Nothing that I just said to you is going to convince you that this story actually happened if you're convinced it didn't. See, human beings have a struggle when it comes to things that they believe. We are very likely to take what we believe and put it up above truth. Say that what I believe is more true than actual factual evidence. This is usually the claim against Christians right? Christians, you take your faith, you take your assumption that there's a God and he wrote this book and that it's all true, and then you go into the world and you look at all the evidence with that assumption. However, scientists, people who are far more fair, will go into the world without any assumptions and then they will just test the evidence and come to a conclusion. Except that's not true. Every position, whether Christian or atheist or somewhere in the middle, is a faith position. Let me explain to you how this, how this works. Um, I am a Christian, and so based on the evidence of the creation of the world, my sinful nature, which is fighting against my conscience all the time, which gives me the understanding that there is right and wrong built into the world, and the level of literary evidence to a man named Jesus Christ who lived 2,000 years ago, who died and was raised again, leads me to believe that the, that the God of the Bible is true, and Jesus is my Savior. 
Now, to be honest, I can't really prove that. I can give you a lot of evidence. I can give you biblical evidence. I can give you non-biblical evidence. I can give you archaeological evidence. I can give you philosophical evidence. But if you do not think that evidence is valid, or you've decided that my evidence is wrong, or you simply have already decided that no matter what I say, I'm going to be wrong, well, none of it's going to work. But the other side is just as much a faith position. See, in order to believe that this story of Noah's Ark didn't happen, really at the heart of it, you have to say there was no God. Because if the God that the Bible presents is real, then he certainly can do all the things that he did, right? So you have to prove that that God doesn't exist. And you can't. It is infinitely impossible to prove something is not existing. Because maybe you don't have the right tools. Maybe you don't have the right instruments. Maybe you haven't thought through the right processes in order to detect that thing that you're trying to prove doesn't exist. In fact, if God is almighty and outside the world, and as he is described in the scriptures, then he almost necessarily cannot be detected by science. All of your scientific methods, they won't be able to find God. So to say that God is not true or God is not real is a faith position. You've looked at the evidence. You've thought to yourself, well, it seems like there shouldn't be a God, and so there is no God. And I'm not saying you can't have that position, just like you can't say, I can have my position. But what I am saying is that both of those positions are equal. Neither of them is based on any more facts than the other. In fact, the biblical archaeologists and the humanist scientists are looking at the exact same evidence and coming to completely different conclusions, which tells you something. It's not about the evidence. It's about your assumptions when you come to the evidence. So, if I'm going to get you to believe that Noah's Ark is a true story, it's not going to be by giving you evidence. It's going to be by helping you understand that the Christian worldview and the truth of the Bible is completely different than everything else you've ever encountered. Now, I hope to do that by showing you how this story isn't just real history. It's a perfectly woven tapestry that points us to the person of Jesus Christ, who came into this world not to ask anything of us, but to give everything to us. Not to say that we must fill in this box or checkmark that blank, but to give it all to us freely. That's a completely unique message, and I hope you will believe it. So for the rest of this sermon, I'm going to assume that you're going to play along with me that this story was actually true. And to do that, we're going to focus on six, six points of the story. Don't worry, they'll go, back, go, by, go, excuse me, go by pretty quickly. And there are actually far more than six. We're not going to focus on things like the dove or the two-by-two two animals or Noah's family at all. We're just going to focus on these six points. They are the ark, the door, the pitch, the water, Noah, and the rainbow. Got that? So ark, door, pitch, water, Noah, rainbow. We're going to focus on those six points and hopefully show you how Jesus is pictured in all of them. So first, the ark. What is the ark? It is a passive container that absorbs all the destruction outside to protect those inside. It floats above the earth as all sorts of destruction happens below it. But it itself, while being destroyed, saves those who are in it. 
There's a verse in Romans 6 that the Apostle Paul records for us in the New Testament where he says this, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Do you understand what he's saying? When Jesus died on the cross, you were there. Connected by your baptism, you were crucified with Christ. You didn't feel it. You didn't experience the pain or the death, but you were there. You were inside him as he was battered and bruised and ripped apart by God's wrath coming at him from all sides. He floated above the earth, absorbing all of God's wrath so that humanity would not get any of it. And Jesus says that by your baptism, you are inside him. You are protected by him. You are contained in him. The ark symbolizes Jesus. If you are in Christ, then you're protected. God's wrath will not come against you. It will come, but it will not come against you. God's wrath will eventually destroy the world, but it will not destroy you. Because all of his wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. If you're taking notes with us, that's your first fill-in-the-blank for today. The ark symbolizes Jesus. Second, we have the door. You know, if the, the ark was built today, it would not pass fire code inspection. It did not have enough exits for people to get out, considering the amount of beings on that boat. But God specifically told Noah to build it this way, with one door, only one way in or out, and as you heard in the text, the Lord shut the door behind Noah. Why would he build it that way? Wouldn't it be far more practical to have multiple doors? That way you can get all the animals in and out more quickly? Because God was trying to teach us something. He was pointing forward to the man who would eventually say, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. There is only one way to God. One door, if you will, one gate. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. There is only one door. Which maybe sounds a little bit ridiculous. You're telling me one Jewish man 2,000 years ago is my only way to get to God? Yes, that is what I'm saying. But think about how ridiculous Noah felt as he was building this huge boat with one door. It took him about 120 years to build this, build this huge boat. And think about, it. you're like, you're 81 on a Wednesday, you wake up and it's raining and you think to yourself, really, that's going to get me. That's going to save me. Yes. Because the Lord said so. What God says is always true, and what Jesus himself, God himself, said is true. There is one way to God. And that door is not something that we find ourselves. It is something that God gives to us. He walks us through and then shuts behind us to remind us that our salvation is not because we chose God or because we did all the right things to get into God or that we have sealed ourselves into God, but that God has done all of that for us the whole way. He brought you to this place to the door, the gate, 
Jesus Christ. He's been walking with you if you've been here for months or years, continually walking you through that gate. And he will be the one who will shut the gate behind you as you enter the new heavens and new earth to be with him forever in a place where nothing can hurt you or harm you again. Our next fill in the blank, if you're taking notes, the door symbolizes Jesus. Third, the pitch. The pitch, or the tar, was the sealant, right? On the inside of the boat, as Noah started to build the walls of the boat, he put this tar, this pitch, to seal the the walls so that no water could get in. Interestingly, the word for pitch, or tar, is a word that is spelled exactly the same as the word for propitiation or atonement. Now, I'm sure many of you don't know what propitiation or atonement is, so I'm going to define that for you. A propitiation is like the paid-off debt. It is the amount that is owed to a certain person. The propitiation is the cost, the fee, the fine that needs to be paid off for some incurred debt. Atonement, you can hear in an at-one-ment, is to bring two things that are separate and bring them together. When a Hebrew would have read this text, he would have heard a pun. You don't hear it because you're an English speaker, but he would have. He would have heard a word that sounded eerily similar to propitiation or atonement. In fact, those three consonants in Hebrew get used, I think, over 50 times in the Old Testament to talk about God's propitiation, his payment of the sin debt that humans owe him, by his own death, except for two places. Here, in the story of Moses when he's in his small little basket ark that's coated with pitch. What is the Hebrew hearing? He's hearing something that, at least in English, would sound a little bit more like, Noah built the ark and he coated the inside with forgiveness. See, the pitch is a picture of Jesus' death. The propitiation for our sin, the payment of our debt owed to God. God's wrath was floating all around us, and we made many mistakes which put gaps in our perfection. But Jesus has covered those gaps and sealed them so that God's wrath would never find us. If you're taking notes, that's the next fill in the blank. The pitch symbolizes Jesus' death. Fourth, the water. Water in and of itself is not that exciting of a thing. But a lot of water altogether, or water flowing downstream, or water pushed by wind is quite powerful. Because water has two characteristics that make it somewhat unique. It's forceful and flexible. A lot of water has the ability to bowl over a person or a car or a house, but it also has the ability to find its way into every nook and cranny that you can't even see. The water of the flood is similar. Because in 1 Peter 3, the Apostle Peter wrote for us that the water of the flood symbolizes baptism. He said, after being made alive, he, that's Jesus, went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, the ark, a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. 
See, at your baptism, God did with water exactly what he did at the flood. He wiped away all evil. He flooded you, every one of your nook and crannies, with a forceful, powerful word that made you his child, that forgave all your sins, so that you could live forever with him. The wrath of God should have come down on you, but your sin was washed away in the same way that the water of the flood washed away all evil. If you're taking notes, that's the next fill in the blank. The water symbolizes baptism. That saves you now also. Fifth then, Noah. Noah's an interesting character, isn't he? A man who is obviously righteous in God's sight, but not obviously righteous by his actions. And yet God calls him to do this amazing thing, this amazing feat of faith, if you will, to build this huge boat. The Bible tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, which meant that as he was going about building this boat, he was more than likely preaching to all the people around him. Repent. Come on the boat with me. Save yourself from the coming wrath. But you have to admit his preaching was rather unsuccessful, wasn't it? He had 120 years to preach, and how many people came to know Jesus during that time? Zero. All that his preaching did was keep seven people in the faith. I heard this great quote from Chad Bird. He's a pastor recently. He said, Noah preached for seven days and only seven people believed, and they were his family. Jonah preached for a few days and a city full of people believed, and they were his enemies. The pulpit is a blessed failure at forecasting numbers. Leave that job to the Spirit. And isn't it the truth? Wouldn't we think that a moral man like like Noah who followed all God's commands, should have seen success in his preaching? Not like Jonah, that man who ran away from God, who despised God's call, who complained when God's call actually started working. And yet that's not how God works. God works through people like us. People who don't look successful when it comes to our Christian life. People who aren't examples of godly living all the time. But those whom God is saving by his word and our faith in his word who he is using to preach to the world. If you're filling in blanks, that's our next one. Noah symbolizes me. A sinner, saved by grace, boldly preaching what God has said is true. But notice also that Noah and Jonah both preached to their enemies and to their family. They didn't sit back and say, you know what, serves them right. They didn't sit back and say, I'm just going to soft-pedal this. You know, hey, maybe if you want to come to church with me, that would be great. No, they said the truth. God is angry. You have sinned. There is a Savior. And while that sounded different from Jonah's mouth and from Noah's mouth based on their culture, they said exactly the same thing. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is coming near. And I hope that we would have that same boldness. That we wouldn't hide behind, oh, our culture will never believe this. There's no love for Christians in our city. This is never going to work. They haven't believed before. No, we would just continue to say the truth. Even if for 120 years we would preach at the people, God would have that, just like he did for Noah. Then the sixth and final point for today, the rainbow. You know, the Hebrew language does not have a word for rainbow. 
It has a word for bow, as in the thing you shoot arrows with, but no word for rainbow. Now, it's very obvious to us that what God put in the sky is the rainbow as we know it today. But there's a really cool picture that comes from understanding that there is no word for rainbow in Hebrew. It is that God sets up his bow. He, he lays it down, right? No longer to shoot arrows. No longer to exact his wrath on creation. He sets it down. And as cool as it would be for God to have a multicolored bow that shoots his arrows, he doesn't actually have one of those. It's a symbol. It's a picture of what God said is true. That he's not going to bring wrath against the world again in the form of a flood. But the truth is, he did bring his wrath against the world again, didn't he? For all the sin that had been committed from the time of Adam until the time of Jesus, and for all the sin that would come after, God did bring his wrath. He brought it down on Jesus, which is why the bow faces upwards. If God had put the rainbow in the sky, pointed down at earth, it would have been a constant reminder that we had better behave or God's going to bring the wrath again. The bow is pointed at us. But it's not. It's pointed at God. Because God knew the next time he would bring wrath down on the world, he would bring it down on himself, on his son, hanging on a cross. So when you see the rainbow, remember that the destruction that you deserved was taken out on Jesus. And because of that, you get to walk free, like Noah out of a boat. The story of Noah's Ark definitely happened. It's definitely history, and it led us to the person of Jesus coming in the flesh to die for our sins. But if we're able to see the beautiful tapestry that, Jesus, or that God wove together in this story to point us to Jesus, then we will understand that this isn't a story just about God's wrath, or just about terrible death, but about life that comes through faith in a Savior who was willing to die for the sins of the world. I pray you tell that story again. Amen.